This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 426 of the Dressage Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products and TotalSaddleFit.com. Tonight we are talking to Denise O'Mara from the Equine Land Conservation Resource about partnering with the USDF to give out an award. Hillary Moore Hebert joins us for a discussion on younger horses, and we're going to cover a question on simple changes. Reese Koffler Stanfield from Georgetown, Kentucky. And this is Philip Parks from Rockwood, Ontario, and you're listening to the Dressage Radio Show. With our producer, Glenn, here is joining us again. This must be like two weeks in a row, Glenn. Wow. It is. I miss you guys, so I have to, I have to uh, you know, get you all in a one month. <laughs> I won't be back for another six. So. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, we're happy, well, we're we're actually, happy to have... We're recording a little early this week because I've got to go to a horse show, and I've got lots of clients to... Have to uh, help. So has to work a little. Everybody, I'm gonna have to work a little little later on this week, but that's okay. Once in a while, (laughs) once in a while, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Every once in a while, it's good. Well, well, we wish you guys luck. I hope it's not super hot. It's gonna be hot again here. Uh, It's gonna be like 106 tomorrow, so that's gonna be pretty hot. So, yeah, that's gonna be a hot one. So, uh, yeah. But I don't, like, I don't think we have to worry too much. It'll be fine. It's thunderstorms yeah. that I worry about, right? That's the only yeah. thing that's going to ruin my day. But sure, there's not much sure, you can do about sure. that, so we're going to be okay. You're going to be great. So, Phil, you did something really cool over the weekend. What would you do? Well, actually, um, on Saturday, I donated my time to uh, to give a clinic uh, some lessons at a, um, a charity event that was a fundraiser for breast cancer research and I thought it was a really cool idea put on by a couple of people uh, partnered with a farm and so what they did is they actually um, silent auctioned off these lessons with myself and a, and a few other coaches in the area um, with the proceeds being donated to uh, to this uh, breast cancer research fund which I thought was a really cool idea they did you know they did a barbecue lunch and uh silent auction for some other items that were donated to uh to this cause and everybody got together wore pink and really um made a really fun cool kind of day out out of it so uh i thought that was a really interesting fundraising idea you know to host a a full clinic with a number of riders and another and a number of clinicians and you know they had a um, you know a, a vet practice that came in donated their time to do a little demonstration uh, saddle fitting. They try to throw kind of everything, equine nutrition, you know, try to bring everything together to, uh, to help a great cause. So I was happy to do that. And, uh, and I got to, you know, teach somebody new that I'd never met before, you know, a horse rider combination. So that was kind of fun. And, uh, yeah, I met a bunch of different people, you know, new people that, you know, who are involved in the sport, but I'd never met before. And uh, had a wonderful, you know, great weather, yeah. wonderful day out of it. So that's really cool. That what a great day! I'll, I'm gonna keep that and maybe put that in our wheelhouse. That that's sounds great. Yeah, I mean, really cool. Um, if you got a great cause, you know, I think yeah. people are more than happy to donate their time or, or you know, whatever it is, and and they were able to raise, I think, around six thousand dollars in one day. Wow! Whoa! That. So that's holy a lot. smokes! <laughs> that's I think a people lot. were happy to you know to bid on the lessons, which. 
you know, were more expensive than they would normally be. But, you know, if, if you get it for a cause, I think yeah. that, that people awesome. are really excited about these kinds of things. And, you know, different than a horse show or, you know, going just going out for a fun event. And I don't know. I thought it was a great idea. Or buying and, a uh, knickknack that you won't ever use. or Yeah, or a yeah, knickknack yeah, or sure. a service. You know, people donated yeah. services for the... You know, not just lessons, but all, all kinds of different things. Um, yeah, uh, equine massage, like all kinds of these. Yeah, so, um, you know, if if anybody's interested in, in kind of organizing something like that, I can certainly get them in touch with the people who ran this great event and, you know, different ideas. It was awesome. So I love it. Oh, that's fantastic. Very cool. Thanks for sharing, Phil. That was great. Right. I love it. Well, Phil, we also have a great interview next, kind of in the same idea of uh, spreading some um, kind of charity. Or uh, We're going to speak with Denise O'Mara from the Equine Land Conservation Resource, and she's going to talk about their partnership with the United States Dressage Federation. Well, we are so happy to have Denise O'Mara. She is the education Director of Education for the Equine Land Conservation Resource. How are you today, Denise? I'm very well. How are you? We are great. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, I really appreciate you having me on. We're excited. So just tell us a little bit, start the whole story, because you are on um, the dressage program because you have partnered with the United States Dressage Federation. Right. Um, As an organization, and we are a national organization, we um, really seek to uh, educate individuals, organizations, and um, even government agencies when they need it, um, about the need for and the value of protecting um, lands, uh, trails, and facilities that are uh, part of the equine activity experience um, throughout the nation. Um, So we do partner with uh, quite a few uh, equine organizations, and, and they can be Anything from, you know, a local uh, riding club to a larger, even uh, state or national organization, uh, regional organization, um, or um, land trust, uh, to, to uh, try to help them to have the tools that they need to deal with issues that come up. Um, and, they, and they could be development, it could be loss of access to trails, could be trying to gain access over private land, um, just a lot of different issues that can come up. And we have six issue areas which have to do with educating this vast group of people across the United States about land use planning and zoning, uh, things that they need to know about the economic benefits of horses and the economic situation in their state, you know, what it means to the local economy and the state economy. We look at liability issues, which are very important when you're dealing with private landowners. We looked at best management practices to look at what type of practices that are happening on a given piece of property and how that affects the watershed, the local community, and what horse people can do to kind of bump that up so that they're they're providing an additional service and we call them ecosystem services. And then we also look at, uh, you know, teaching about conservation easements and that's a really powerful tool. There are a lot of different types of, of uh, easements and programs that deal with, uh, you know, purchasing or donating um, development rights to given pieces of property. So there's a, you know, kind of a broad spectrum of information that we delve into and dish out uh, to our constituents. 
Yeah, what's the relationship? Um, well, USDF happens to be a, both a physical neighbor of ours. We're at the Kentucky Horse Park, and the, the group of horse organizations that are here do a lot of communicate with each other quite a bit, and uh, they have a very good educational program that they run. And so we, you know, it's kind of easy for us to talk with them face-to-face because we can just walk down the street and they're right there. But they also have a very well-organized constituency. They're, you know, all of their uh, nationwide groups are are quite well-organized and they're easy to communicate with. So we asked them if they would be interested in kind of carrying on that educational component by focusing on individuals or, or organizations that have done or are working on land conservation issues, whether that be, you know, facilities, uh, show facilities, farms, ranches, you know, anything that's like that, including trails. And some dressage people do use trails for exercise. We have a history of recognizing people in, you know, in the nation an awards program. It was named after, it's called the Anson Taylor Award. It was named after one of our original founders uh, for ELCR. And it recognizes people who have done pretty much amazing things in their community to uh, preserve access to these these equine lands, trails, um, and facilities. So we've been kind of expanding that over the last few years. Um, we uh, started a program with thoroughbred owners and breeders. Um, again, another neighbor of ours in the in the park, and we're we're trying to expand that year after year. We ask them to uh, send out uh, some information and a, and a, and a, actually an application form to people that are within their realm that have that have been working the same as with the Anson Taylor Award that have been working on equine land advocacy and activities. And uh, so this is the first year that we're doing that with USDF. We think it's going to turn out to be great. Uh, We're going to award that at their annual meeting. So we've got until I think that would be in October to to have um, applications come in. And we're really looking forward to seeing what these different local chapters are have been doing in this in this realm i i think that it's really important that no matter what end uh the the equestrian community that you're in whether it's in high-end showing or local individual riders that just ride trails that you're really aware of everything that's going on in your community that could affect your access to land zoning, uh, you know, how that affects how many horses you can keep and um, all of these aspects. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to be tremendously active in it until something happens, but you do need to be aware. You need to educate yourself. You need to be involved in the planning process in your community because very often your access to land and the type of zoning that's happening can affect what happens to a given piece of property or a trail or a connection or a uh, show facility or, you know, an eventing facility. So every organization that's out there um, can really help themselves out a lot and help their community by becoming aware of the things that they can do to be proactive about saving horse land. 
Fantastic. So Denise, how do we, how do people, if they're more interested, how do we get more information and or an application for the USDF award? Um, we have uh, posted on our website and um, USDF has it on their website, the application link, and they can find out more about the, the award. The application is, is fairly lengthy, but not too bad. You do have to do a little bit of uh, kind of short essay type writing, I guess, you know, you need to sure. put in a paragraph about certain things, you know, to just talk about what you've been doing and what the results of it have been, or if you're in the middle of something, you know, what, what caused it to start out with. So if you go to the USDF website, you should be able to find that, that link uh, very quickly. You can also get it through our website. And if you have any questions about that, you can call the USDF number, which I don't have handy right at the moment, or you can call us at, uh, at ELCR. And, and uh, our number is 859-455-8383. Um, there are lots of ways to get to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Well, Denise, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us uh, what you're up to. It sounds like a fantastic award. And, you know, being from Lexington, uh, this is a big issue that we deal with a lot. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's great to have such a great organization. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. This Nutrition Minute is brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products, the company that simplifies your search for research-proven nutritional supplements at kppusa.com. The horse that matters to you matters to Kentucky Performance Products. Managing horses can be challenging. Each horse's personality affects the way he behaves and reacts to the world around him. Horses with certain dispositions can be at higher risk for developing health problems than others. High-strung or excitable horses are easily stressed, but so is the timid, quiet warrior. Stressed horses are more likely to develop digestive upsets that lead to colic, diarrhea, and ulcers. Nalox Advanced was specifically developed to support a digestive tract that is under stress. It sustains proper pH levels, reducing the incidence of ulcers and hindgut imbalances, while simultaneously supporting the healing of damaged tissue. Nalox Advanced supports the complete digestion of starches and sugars and sustains populations of beneficial bacteria. Make life a little easier on your sensitive horse and start him on Nalox Advanced today. To learn more about the ingredients in Nalox Advanced, visit Kentucky Performance Products at kppusa.com. Tonight, we are so happy to have Hillary Moore Hebert, contributing editor for Dressage today on for her monthly segment. How are you, Hillary? Hi, guys. I'm doing great. How are you? I think we're all sweating. Is what's happening. <laughs> it's very hot. So, Hillary, what are we talking about today? So, I wanted to go kind of in a direction because I had a couple of things happen over the course of the hot weather. Um, whenever it's this hot, I usually do things like buy young horses in my free time because <laughs> I can sit on the internet side and I have a second to kind of look through things. Um, and people are starting to get, you know, heartbeat confirmed so you can get some horses in utero before anybody else snacks them. But, um, I just had a, um, horse that I bought in utero that's Dante Weltino diamond hit that just hit the ground and uh he's a colt and it kind of caught me off guard because I just was expecting a mare I don't know why and I sort of imagined okay if it doesn't work out you know you always have 
a broodmare prospect or whatever, and he's really nice. And it came up with all of these questions of, you know, what do you do with a young horse? And as much as I want to believe, you know, as a professional, I compete at the eye that I have all of this knowledge of things with breeding and on and on and on. It really is something that I feel like I'm an amateur about. Um, and I feel very nervous. I really appreciate the breeders helping me. And I have some friends who really walk me through some stuff, but, um, there was an article, uh, up on the internet the other day talking about how one of our, um, you know, more recognizable younger horses ended up selling in Europe for quite a large amount of money. And um, the article got a lot of people on social media talking about exactly how I feel right now, where there's this disconnect and people kind of argue what I mean by that. So I'm nervous to use that word, but there's a disconnect I feel where I'm really good at looking at finished horses, knowing, you know, if I see a horse that's going first level, second level, third level, I can kind of look at it say, okay, that is the type of horse that I'm attracted to. I can see what's going on, but how do I train my eye to look at young, young horses, like, you know, a horse that's three weeks old, three months old, and three years old, and how do I say, okay, if I had all the money in the world, what horse would I be picking? Um, it, it starts to get to an interesting place, and then there's a lot of other questions, too. If you buy a young horse like that say you find Allegro and he's three weeks old and you buy him what do you do with that horse because not a lot of boarding barns are kind of lining up to take in weanlings and have them hang out at their place and and it's a little bit I think more up in the air in our country about what to do with um you know young horse training and there's this these questions about our FEI trainers suitable as young horse trainers because in Europe you have a lot of people who specialize in young horses so it's a tricky thing like if you're given all the things in the world with ending up breeding a horse that comes out and is phenomenal what are those steps um and if you had all the money in the world which not many people do you know if you were to buy your dream youngster what is it that you're looking for and what are the resources that we have to help people learn that more. And I was really excited today to talk to you guys about that because I think you guys know more than I do about it. And it was sort of, I wanted to just ask a lot of questions because I think a lot of the listeners will also be curious about, you know, what steps can you take if you decide that you want a young horse and you want to do right by them to develop them? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and, and I think a challenging question, and I think, Phil, you're going to be the best resource, so uh, I can just <laughs> throw my towel in. Um, I did some breeding, and I bred three horses, and um, they're, they're actually all lovely individuals. I, I was very happy with breeding, but I will tell you, from a breeding perspective, it is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it is hard to breed a horse. I had a really, really wonderful mare that I bred and I was very lucky to have a Grand Prix horse that I was able to breed and I did embryo transfer for one of them. And I will tell you after three babies, I decided very quickly that I wanted to uh, just buy a horse <laughs> when I could see it and knew what I was buying um, and more of an older horse. But that was from 
my perspective. And I personally, I mean, I own a farm and it wasn't a big deal to have them. And I had young horses growing up. Uh, my mom did hunters, uh, hunter babies. So I had some experience with it. I will tell you, for me, you have to really love the young horse process and the baby process. And I wasn't really for me. So, and then from a financial standpoint, God love breeders because it is very hard. I mean, there's, there's a lot of coins side to this coin in the sense of, you know, breeders breed them and then they feel like they're worth X amount of money, but riders and trainers feel like those horses need to have a certain amount of miles, if that makes sense, or culture. And that takes money for the breeders to, to make that happen if they aren't able to do it. So it's, it's a little bit, I think it's, it's hard. Um, and it's very hard to find a young horse and to, to make it to be a nice individual. Um, and I learned that, I mean, I ended up having to have some ground people come in and work on manners and then I don't really like starting the youngsters. So I would, you know, so it got expensive even for myself because that's not also sort of the area I specialize in. So I would say it was very hard. Uh, I think we did, um, actually a pretty good job getting it, getting it done, but, uh, it wasn't for me. Um, so Phil, that's not, that's a very kind of a pessimistic view, but that was sort of for my thing with breeding was, it was sort of, I did it and I thought, okay, I did a good job and, but it, it, I didn't enjoy the process. And I think on some level you really have to enjoy, you know, going to your first show and, and, and doing some groundwork. And for me, I want to ride. So that wasn't my thing, but, um, Phil, this is well, definitely a lot you, more your area. In yeah, terms of risk. what you're talking about. Yeah, the thing that really strikes a chord with me because, you know, I've had a lot of people where they've lost their mare, and the first thing that comes to mind when you're talking about that is you are putting in a lot of risk with your mare, you know, if you're not doing embryo transfer, that if you end up with a situation where even, like, say, as a maiden mare, she loses the foal, then you lose the foal prospect or the prospect of a foal, and then you lose your mare and that is awful. And I think there's a lot of risk as a breeder that then for me, there's some guilt that I kind of swoop in buy a horse in utero. And I'm like, well, if it doesn't work, like there goes my little deposit. But meanwhile, you're like, you know, in the barn losing your mare or, you know, it just is a lot more risk, I think. So I, I totally agree with you. It seems like there's a lot even going into it in the first, you know, couple of months. Well, and I think, you know, for me, it, it was, it was very, it was, it was great experience and I'm really glad, but I ended up with a gelding that I still have that we love him, but you know, he's really, he struggles Pat with collection because he's such a big guy. He got injured as a young horse. So, you know, that that's, I still own him and he's a very beautiful pasture pet. And then um, I had two smaller mares and very, very well bred. I, if I wanted to continue my breeding program, I kept them. But for riding horses, you know, they were both, one was, I think, 16, 16, one when she finished and the other one's like 15, three. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. five, five, nine, almost five, 10. So like, that's just not the size that I wanted. So, you know, from that perspective, it was just easier for me to now go and, and we can certainly bring this discussion there, but, you know, to, to go to Europe and find a young horse, you're still going to have to pay the import fee, but I, I always yeah. feel you need to buy the, the the oldest age you can afford. So, uh, Phil, what do you, what do you, you weigh in, you've been awful quiet, but this is really your thing. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I uh, have done a little breeding with a mare or two of my own. Uh, when I went to Europe, I, I went to a farm that also did breeding and also uh, my boss there, Johan Rocks, who was a Dutch team trainer. He actually purchased, um, it's a guy that comes from not a lot of money. So he has uh, built up horses that he had purchased as weanlings, yearlings, two-year-olds, a lot of young horses we dealt with. And so I would always kind of pick his brain about breeding, about buying young horses and, and, and stuff like that. And now I'm back working for a, uh, for a person that has two brood managers who do a little bit of breeding there. So, I mean, I have a ton of experience with young horses, a ton of experience with people who like to buy young horses. I mean, it's really, um, you know, I've really tried to educate myself because I mean, if you're going to buy a made horse, it costs a lot, a lot of money. I mean, um, you know, and that's just not somewhere I come from. But um, so, you know, purchasing in utero, it sounds like a really good option, a great idea. You know, you're not putting out a ton of money. And, and then again, you're kind of like, well, am I going to get a mare? Am I going to get a gelding? Am I going to get a really nice horse? Am I going to, you know, you have to kind of decide what you what your expectation is and whether that matches up. Because I think a lot of people by in utero and you can breed the best bloodlines ever in the entire world and, and still not get a very nice horse that's just something that happens so um it's it's very risky and anytime you buy a horse that isn't finished and made and done where you want it to be it's a risk and so it's not always the best thing to be doing um as far as like looking at young horses i i think i've talked to reese about this before and, and looking at foals and um, for me, if I'm going to buy a foal, um, I have to really, well, any horse, you have to kind of like the character first or, or at least research the bloodlines enough to know that the, the horses will have or should have a, a pretty good temperament. Now they say that temperament comes mostly from the mare. That's just, you know, uh, something that the breeders say. I think that can be true. To a certain extent, but uh, just to finish that thought, we have two um, half brother sisters that have the same mare and different stallions, and they are completely not alike. You wouldn't even be able to tell that they're related. I mean, just temperament, build. Um, so, you know, there's no way to guarantee anything when you're breeding two horses. I guess is the point. Um, you try and do the best job that you do, and usually, um, you know, the the breeders in Europe have generations of mares that they've bred themselves and really know themselves and and that you know that's how they get their best combination you know a lot of people in north america just kind of just as a generalization generalization just have a mare they only know one generation they don't they don't you know they haven't crossed it a whole lot with different horses so it's just uh, i think it comes down to a culture of breeding and, a, and just a ton of knowledge that produces the best horses yeah, that, that makes sense. So, Phil, okay, so once you kind of get this horse, you have a now, you know, in Hillary's case, she got a colt, not a not a, a filly. Um, I mean, what what is your advice um, step one, to do next? It. I mean, as part of that, and I'm not saying this in my case necessarily, but this is the big question with a colt is what do you do with a colt to know whether or not it should be gelded? Um, it should a hundred percent. Yeah. I, yeah, I have I very mean, good advice from, from Suzanne Hassler at Hassler dressage. When I had a very, you know, a nice looking cult, I thought, Oh, 
let me think about keeping this to Stallion. And she said the best thing to me. She said, first of all, think about the life that that Stallion is going to have. It's a very, very difficult life that the Stallions have. You know, they have to have different turnout. They have to have, you know, they have to be handled differently. Uh, number one, you need to be capable and willing to do that. And number two, realize that it's so, it, it takes so much for that horse to really, really make it as a stallion. And then it's still very difficult to make it lucrative. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to geld my horse. So I would just say that, you know, yes, you can have the dream of being, having a stallion, but you know, what, what are your ultimate goals? Do you want a breeding farm? Do you want a breeding stallion? Or are you trying to go for a riding horse? If you're going for a riding horse, I think gelding it is step one for me. I mean, that's what I did for myself. And and that was a good thing. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, a nice stallion makes an exceptional gelding. You know, um, I think if you want to be in the breeding game, the the stallion should be in Europe because there you get to cover tons of mares. You know, you might, you know, financially, you don't, there's not a lot of money in breeding. So. Uh, I just think, and like I said, I mean, I wrote, I wrote a stallion. It was a Frisian, um, you know, since he was three years old and it's, it's not very nice for the horse because they are social animals. Only we can't make, let them be social. Can't run around in a herd of mares, what they want to do. And, and, you know, and then for boarding and for just handling the horse, you always had to kind of think about it. And, um, you know, at a horse show, you know, there's just so many things that goes into dealing with the stallion, but I think. It's just much nicer for for them to be a gelding, you know. Yeah. That's, well, uh, I agree with that. Like, well, it seems like too, as you guys are talking about that again, because I come more from the perspective of just like the riding side. The, the schedule that we have developed in our country with Florida, and then people can now go to Tryon to kind of go midway, and then you can go to do you know, stuff all through the summer, and then you can decide between doing championships and finals and, you know, Devin's in the fall, and then you can go right back to Florida. I can't imagine how you could really be doing, and then people are going to Europe for the summer, how you could be fitting in anything. I think about some people I know who have shown stallions for breeders and always what they were talking about is, you know, right when we're getting to peak for competition, the horse has to go and breed and it, it just was exhausting to them and it threw them off their schedule. Um, it just seems like it would be a lot to kind of overlap and how do you juggle all those things the same way, you know, having my child, you have to kind of do something that's tangential to what your competition is. And so it makes sense to me that it would just make it so it would be just a very difficult thing to do. Yes. I yeah, think so too. Of, I think it really yeah, a lot of problems and logistics around if he, you know if the horse if it's not just a stallion it's actually a breeding stallion it's you know um, from a trainer's point of view is very very difficult. I, I just you really have to have a really good purpose for doing that I think, and I'm not sure a, a lot of people do. So um, you know the big breeding farms yeah. they do it really well and they 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 manage yeah. it and and I think that's the way it should be done. Well, and so I think that brings up the next question is sort of what, what do you think uh, a young, uh, a little one should be doing? I mean, I, I worked with my little ones, um, so they weren't complete outside beasts. Like they knew how to wear halters, they knew how to walk, and I had, um, they did a little bit of groundwork, 
uh, because one was just really difficult to handle. She was just, she needed something to do. Um, and, and that was after we weaned her. So, I mean, my guys knew how to get on the trailer and, you know, as, as yearlings and two-year-olds, um, I think that was really important. I, I, like I said, I didn't enjoy myself working with them. So I brought in somebody that did a really good job with them. I didn't, didn't have the patience. I was like, I'm not teaching this thing how to get on the trailer. Um, but they did a really good job at that. And I thought that that was really incredibly important. Um, you know, I think a lot of times breeders, sometimes, you know, they bring in a three or four year old that literally doesn't know how to wear halter. And I think yeah. that that makes that horse's Some road older. Yeah. So much harder for that horse. Yeah, but I know I mean, some I've, people I've, where they kind of think the horses shouldn't be working until crazy late. And then it's just, you know, I find that surprising because you have a full grown horse that's barely been handled and it's like a dinosaur. Yeah. Right. I, I don't enjoy that myself. So what, what were you thinking? Well, I've seen it on, on both ends. You know, I've seen people who have the time to kind of manage the young horses and turn them in and out every day and, and deal with them. And I've also dealt with, a, you know, a few two-year-old, three-year-olds that have been, you know, literally out in the paddock and running with the herd. And um, it's a difficult transition for the horse, but they get over it. And within two or three months, they're into work and into being handled and into being, you know, um, into a different schedule and a different life. It, it just is a difficult, you have to be really confident. And it's just a difficult transition at that time. Um, obviously, the ones that who are already handled it's it's easier for them, I think, but uh, you know it 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 takes a lot of time to be able to do that because that you have to be really consistent yeah. with it and and do it you know uh, consistently, um, you know kind of every day and 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 dealing with young horses that's not always a lot of fun. Um, I know in Europe they have these big breeding farms and the horses are just out in the field and and again it comes down to character you know with with a horse with a good character, they can, you know, they'll work with you and, and you can deal with them and, and, it, and it turns out it's okay. And you can, you know, kind of do the whole process of bringing them into a stall and backing them all at the same time. But again, it just, you know, with all of this stuff, it just takes a lot of experience and you have to kind of lean on professionals and people who know how to do it. You know, the idea of, uh, you know, just getting a young horse, a really young horse, you know, for the first time and, and just playing with it for two or three years. And then, oh, and then, then I'm just going to lunge it. And then I'm just, and to me, I've seen way too many disasters in this situation than, um, than things going really well. We have run out of time for tonight. But Hillary, um, how could our listeners find you online if they have any more questions for you? They can um, check out dressagetoday.com. And then you can also um, check us out on Facebook uh, and always, if anyone has interesting topics or questions, they can always find me on Facebook at Hillary Moore Hebert and just send me a private message. Uh, just if there's any topics in general they had questions about, um, that's something new. I kind of want to encourage people to do so that we can think about things that some of the listeners might be interested in. This week's dressage training tip is brought to you by Total Saddle Fit, home of the shoulder relief girth at totalsaddlefit.com. Well, Phil, for our Total Saddle Fit tip of the week, we got um, or have a Facebook shout out uh, and or email that we got. So read it to us. What what are we talking about today? We got a question from Claire that we're going to try and cover about how to develop 
quality canter walk transitions. Uh, she says, my horse and I seem to have a lot of trouble staying relaxed and balanced in the down transition. I try to not use my reins, but she tends to dive on the forehand and brace against the bridle, and I feel helpless and, and confused on how to fix that without using my reins. When it feels like she's already running onto them, we occasionally get a nice one when she is super collected, balanced, and I ex- ask at the exact right moment, but they are few and far between. How can we help her? Okay. Phil, do you want to take this one first? Why do I got to take the tough ones first? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, no, um, no, she actually, yeah, she kind of answered her own question. Yeah. yeah, In some ways. Insight into the problem right away in the question. You know, like a downwards transition in the canter comes from being really balanced, uh, rhythmical, and uh, and having everything set up almost perfectly before you ever even ask. Um, I think the second thing is that she's trying to do it without using your reins, but I think. To train this movement, this downward transition to get it right, I think to help the horse, you you have to actually use the reins to to help it happen. And then, you know, as you develop it better and the balance better, then you can start to use less and less rein aids. I think that kind of applies to a lot of things. You know, um, the end goal is there, but you have to do something to be able to get there. You know, so if your if your horse is plowing through the reins a little bit and you want to make this downwards transition. Um, you've got to use your reins, but sometimes it's just maybe using your reins better. I think in the in the canter to walk transition, especially timing is such a huge component of the of how it all comes together. And I always tell I try and tell my riders to think about each canter stride being in in two phases. There's the kind of the collection phase of the canter stride. That's the first part, and then the forward phase. And what I see a lot of riders do is actually grabbing the horse in the forward phase and releasing in the collecting phase instead of the other way around. Um, I think um, I myself had some trouble with this, um, you know, a while ago. But um, it's it's the timing in the canter is just Mm -hmm. such a huge thing. What do you think about that, you know, in in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right on. And I think she's she's getting kind of understands what's happening, which is also great. Um, you know, canter walks are also significant strength um, situation. Horses have to be strong enough to be able to hold that collected canter. Uh, so again, transitions within the gate will also help canter, very collected canter, canter out, very collected canter, uh, where you're getting the horses to sit and be a little bit more active behind. That for sure is also important. Um, but like you said, uh, you do have, there is some level of you have to ride a half halt from your hands and, and the reins, but you also have to make sure that your seat is pretty active. That's a pretty active seat you have to have before you ride the transition to walk. Um, and then my other thing is placement. That was the only thing I was going to add to that, Phil, was when I start to teach canter walks, a lot of times, I mean, the horse theoretically should know how to do a 10 meter circle or a smaller circle. Uh, what I like to do is do that circle and then after the transition when I'm coming toward the wall. Now, that's yeah. obviously – I'm lucky enough that I have an indoor where there's walls. But even if you are outside, some sort of barrier will help because the horse is already thinking I've got to come back a little bit. Um, it A wall really helps <laughs> because they, they yeah. will come back because there's a wall. So I like to ride – 
yeah, they have to, right? A 10 meter circle. And as I make my circle and I'm approaching the wall at the end, that's where I try to teach them the canter walk transitions. Um, Cause by nature, it's going to back them off. It's hard to do it sort of, if you're doing a canter walk and let's say you're on a, a going to the open side of the arena, that's a tough spot to ask for the canter walk. Um, and I even think second level test one, they have you go, it's actually a pretty hard line uh, because they're testing to see, do can your horse do the canter walk? But they have you come across the short diagonal, I'm almost positive here, and um, do the transition to walk over the center line. Of course, the horse is going to come on the diagonal and think forward or have a tendency to come on their forehand. So that's a really hard place to put that walk transition. Um, but that would be where I wouldn't teach it in the beginning. I wouldn't teach the second level one movement in the beginning because of how the horse is thinking. So that's the only other thing I would add to that is make sure as you're doing your canter walks that you have a good placement or let's say you're coming through the circle. So almost a figure eight on one of the ends, of the circle. So again, that will bring the horse back. It's another good exercise. So you can get creative with how you do your circles, but just have them be completed for the walk transition toward the arena wall. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's yeah. good. That's good. So, I mean, again, an, another an, another way to sort of evaluate your downwards transition is in the upwards transition. So I see a lot of people ride walk to canter and the canter being a little bit too much forward and not organized enough. So when you do your, your walk to canter, think of cantering right away, collected, and then coming back to walk as soon as you can. So only doing maybe, you know, try try to shorten it up as much as you can. If you start with five strides, try and get down to, you know, cantering three strides and then walking again. So the horse doesn't get a chance to really run forward or, or cover too much ground. You know, just doing, you know, quick kind of canter walk, canter walk, canter walk. So they're thinking already about walk before they get going too much, you know. So I think, you know, that will, again, it's, it's balance, developing balance, developing strength. Um, it's, yeah, I think this is a really tough problem. It's a big jump from doing first mm -hmm. level where the, the, you know, you do a simple change through trot, which is, you know, fairly okay and pretty, you know, every, I think a lot of horses can kind of manage their way through that to doing, you know, uh, simple changes through the walk. And now this is like serious, you know, um, balance and serious carrying power that the horse needs. I think uh, you can see a lot of horses just fall down onto the forehand. Mm -hmm. um, that that can happen for a number of reasons. That's really a tough one to fix mm -hmm. without being able to kind of see the horse a little bit. And, and, and you know, normally when I'm doing a clinic or I'm, I'm helping a horse that I haven't seen before, I have to try three or four different things to try and figure out what exactly is going on. So that's what I'm talking about. You know, the upward transition, kind of look at that, see if the horse can can lift the wither and lift the pole in the upper transition if, if if they just you know are walking and then plow through into the canter then i would deal with that problem first and then you know work on the downwards a little bit while trying to keep the pole up but if if you're trying to throw away the reins a little bit too early then of course the horse is just going to you know fall down the, the the contact and the reins and the hands have a little bit of a job of helping the horse to balance because without enough rain pressure then the, the neck will naturally just drop down and, and fall towards the ground. You know, there needs to be something that helps keep them up or teach them that they are supposed to go up 
before they learn, you know, learn to just go up on their own and learn to um, that the muscles are developed to carry on their own a little bit. So a little bit of the, co- the job of the contact is to help the horse develop the muscles so then you, they can do it on their own. So it's part of the development phase of all of this. So I, I think, you know, you got the idea without using a ton of pressure or be pulling on the reins, but also you, you, there's a responsibility of the rider to help that develop better um, through a little bit of pressure or a little bit of timing and balance. That's, what, that's the way I would try and put it is just timing and assistance in the balance so that you give at the right time and you take at the right time. You know, all of this is, it's, it can be pretty complicated, but um, I think, you know, with these ideas, you'll get going a little bit in a better way. I think this takes about a year from the mm-hmm, inception agreed. of the idea of a simple change mm-hmm. to actually being able to perform a pretty decent simple change for a six or a seven in a test. So, um, and some horses you know, are like everything plugging it? away. Like nail it? Yeah. yeah like they're like, oh, oh, okay, this is no problem. And then others really struggle with it. So, uh, you know, so give it some yeah. time too. The horses with a better canter just naturally mm-hmm. do it better. I know that the thoroughbreds get these simple changes um pretty easily they actually can be a little bit short and nervous about it mm-hmm. that's a little bit on another problem in spectrum yeah. of training but um and then you know so even uh, the warm bloods can be a little kind of dull and heavy on the front end to mm-hmm. to be able to get this right away really well so um yeah. i think everyone struggles with this this is a big you know that's a big change a big in the horse's balance in life yeah. yeah second level is huge so um, hopefully it helps if you have more and, questions or, or yeah. yeah, we need to explain something better that you can send us another, another message or, um, uh, we can try and help in a different way or, or say something in a different way and we'll, we'll figure it out together. Love it. That sound? That sounds great. <laughs> well, everybody, as you know, you can find our show notes and links to today's guest on our website, dressageradio.com. Like us on Facebook, just search dressage radio show. Follow us on Twitter at horse radio. My website is maplecrestfarmky.com, and my email is reese at horseradionetwork.com. I think the best way to find me is through Facebook, or my email is philip at horseradionetwork.com. I'd like to thank our sponsors for allowing us to put on a good show, and don't forget to check out all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. Everybody, keep your heels down and your shoulders back, and we'll talk to you next week. 